0: Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. With Lucia and me today is Michael Apple, who is one of the pillars of critical pedagogy and is the John Bascom Professor of Curriculum and Instruction and Educational Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He has numerous honorary doctorates. He has... Uh, mentored over 119 PhD students as their advisor, so they're out in the world doing good things. He has authored or edited over 50 books, and I'm just gonna list, uh, name some of the um, ones that, that I know the best. Uh, official Knowledge, Democratic Knowledge in a Conservative Age, Ideology and Curriculum, and Can Education Change Society? Uh, Michael is in what he calls light retirement so we really appreciate you coming on the podcast
1: it's a pleasure to be here
0: so uh, join me in welcoming Michael Apple to nothing never happens okay Lucia you're right ask the- I'll kick off with the first question this is a broad question Michael so take it in any direction you'd like you have been at this work of activism and theory for many years now, and it's taken lots of different shapes. And um, I wonder how you came to think of yourself as an activist theorist, and if you could share with us something major that you've learned along the way that you still carry with you.
1: Sure. My biography is a complicated one. I'm first generation finishing secondary school in my family. Uh, but I come from quite a politically active family. Uh, I come from a family of printers, and in fact, I did my undergraduate work mostly part-time, both before and after my time being dragged into the U.S. Army, um, while I worked as a printer. So uh, I have a good deal of respect both for the left and certainly for the labor both paid and unpaid of real people in real communities whether it's on farms or in factories or in schools. Um, I also uh, was given, this is an interesting part of my history, at the age of 12 by my grandfather who never finished primary school but was a political exile from Russia and Ukraine. Um, was given a copy of uh, volume one of Capital at the age of 12, and at the age of 13 was given a copy of volume two, and the assumption, I might not agree with all of it, but I would read it. So I come from this history of political activism, and uh, before we were called Freedom Riders, I was also deeply involved in trying to reopen schools in the South uh, that had been closed and bought for $1 um, by white citizens councils, So part of my history is both pedagogic in that, uh, you know, it's being taught and teaching and reopening schools, but some of it has to do with my being a teacher in Patterson, New Jersey, which is the home of the first general strike in the United States. Uh, And if you ever saw the film, the lamentable film called, uh, oh, I can't even remember the, oh, Lean on Me. Oh, yeah. uh, Joe Clark, this principal who cleaned up Patterson Eastside High School. That's the school I went to before Joe mm-hmm. was principal and one of the schools I taught in. And I was put as president of a teacher's union at the same time. So again, there's this combination of reading a good deal of radical material coming from a radical family, uh, being asked to work on it. Uh, that is not just to be rhetorical about it. And I'll say more about rhetorical politics probably later since I have no patience with it. But at Mm. the same time, teaching in slum schools, schools I went to, and then in rural schools in the south of New Jersey at the same time, in very poor rural communities. So that, that reminds me. It's a lesson I've tried to keep in the forefront of my mind, and that is this is about things that are hard, difficult to understand, and difficult to act on but also they're real. Uh, when I'm on a plane and someone asks me what I do, I don't say I'm a professor who's got a number of awards. What I say is I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. And If they look askance, says, oh my God, you're not worth talking to. I've learned something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if it looks like they are interested, then I understand that this can be an interesting conversation. So I'll stop there. Otherwise I'll go on uh, for a long period of time.
0: Well, I'd like to get into one of the main issues that you've written about, which is um, in the ideology in curriculum in the schools. Um, and we've seen that um, over you know, the last 50, 60 years with the Pledge of Allegiance, with No Child Left Behind, with new so-called reform methods, with um, the division of private and public education and um, the rise of public charter schools run by private companies and, you know, sort of that hybrid, Um, the uh, low um, support for public schools, the resegregation of the schools as Jonathan Kozel calls it. Um, Mm -hmm. If you could talk about what, you know, your your work in in curriculum uh, reform and democratic curriculum for social transformation, where you see us today in terms of uh, school curriculum, um, not just in K through 12, especially there, I guess, but uh, also in higher education.
1: All right. Um, First of all, um, the first book, the first major book that I did, Ideology and Curriculum, was Mm -hmm. one of the first to try and look at something that most of the left uh, actually thought was inconsequential. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it was both a response to the ideological forms that were taught in schools, uh, Mm -hmm. but also a response to the left, which focused only on the hidden curriculum. And Bowles and Gintis, their book, Uh, Schooling in Capitalist America, becomes the best example of this. Mm -hmm. And their argument was basically that, um, you know, the, the most important things that schools did was to teach poor kids to be stupid and rich kids to be managers. Um, Mm. That's an overstatement, but at least their argument is a little more subtle than that. But it seemed to me I was influenced quite strongly by Antonio Gramsci and Mm. uh, the entire tradition, part of my training uh, and education at Columbia was in sociology of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in my mind, the curriculum itself, both, both hidden and overt, was crucial. So I tried to look at uh, the way in which power was made visible, but also how power was made invisible. And what to me is most important is not only what is taught, but also how it's organized. The organization of the curriculum also speaks to ideological form. An example would be this. We now are being told that STEM is the most important way that we should organize curriculum. And it both is a statement about epistemological war, that is, anything around literature or the traditions and liberation theology or history. Unless that can be used for profit, it's not very important. And uh, we will smuggle in art. uh, By now at Wisconsin, we have no longer STEM. We have STEAM.
0: So
1: science, technology, engineering, the arts and mathematics. And the only use for the arts... And humanities, then, would be for profit-making. Can it make engineers and entrepreneurs more nuanced? Hmm. Um, But what's important as well are the absent presences, not just what's there and how it's organized. So let Hmm. me give an example, something I just learned, uh, much to my shame that I didn't know it. Um, There's this, in most social studies books used in elementary and secondary schools, there's an iconic photograph of the two railroad constructions meeting to put in the ground of the Golden Rail. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that photograph shows a large number of white men, yet new historical research documents what Chinese Americans have always known, which is that 80% of the people who worked from the West to the central part of the United States to meet the railroad construction from the East, were Chinese. Yeah. Now that actually becomes quite crucial in a time now when we've got anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, anti-African American sentiment, anti-Semitism, et cetera. That is Mm -hmm. that absent presence, that is what is missing is just as important in terms of the way ideological form functions. And it's what I call both an epistemological fog and an epistemological war. The epistemological fog, don't tell me things that make me feel guilty. Mm. Uh, an example would be the debate over reparations now. There would be no United States without the unpaid and enslaved labor of Afro-Americans, uh, as well as Latinx people, who are, many of whom also were enslaved, And many indigenous people are also enslaved or killed. So part of this is a fog. Don't tell me because then I'll be called upon to act. And -hmm. the other is an epistemological war. Um, Those areas that can be testable um, are more important. So the attack on the arts, a good example would be in many urban and rural school systems right now, Art teachers, physical education and dance teachers, music teachers are not being replaced. And we're asking them teachers who are already martyring themselves constantly to try and build something that's responsive to kids and their colleagues and communities and schools to do ever more. So, so again, it seems to me we want to see how this works and we can see it at higher education so Mm -hmm. that uh, it both is part of the identities of incoming students. Uh, An example would be at Wisconsin, where we have one of the highest rated teacher education programs in the United States. Um, Whether that's true or not is not the point. Mm -hmm. Um, We used to have about 500 people applying for 150 positions. We now have approximately 150 people applying for 150 positions Mm -hmm. because of what's going on, uh, the demand that higher education be vocational. So that people come in wanting to learn, how do you discipline students? How do I manage a classroom? And those questions are important. Mm -hmm. But they have now taken the place of all of the other questions about what does it mean to be democratic and responsive? Mm -hmm. How can you be a teacher in a time when you are being martyred, when you are being, where your labor is being intensified and managed? So the new managerialism has made it almost impossible in many schools and higher education to also fight the good fight over democracy. Mm -hmm. Let me make one other point we might come back to later on. Mm -hmm. I want us to remember that it's not simply ruling class or white or homophobic forms that are dominating the curriculum. The curriculum has historically been a compromise. Let me remind people that the right is really angry about the curriculum in schools right now. And it's angry about what you are doing at Agnes Scott and what we are trying to do in Wisconsin. There's a reason that the right in the legislature in Wisconsin has cut the budget by $250 million in the last six or seven years here at Wisconsin. And that's because there have been victories. And I want us to remember that constantly. Otherwise, we become cynical that we've lost the ideological battle. It's all about privatization. Well, the fact that the right is so angry at the curriculum right now wants uh, us to, you know, stop teaching about this unimportant knowledge of women and people of color and real history and mathematics for social justice. One of my favorite areas as a former math teacher mm-hmm. um yeah they, they know that we have made victory so it's not just transforming it's also defending the gains that we've made
0: yeah well uh to go back to what you said about teachers as martyrs uh if you could talk more about the challenges that that uh teachers face today um and and also, at the root of that, teacher education programs, when I think somewhere you said uh, you made a good point of how uh, a lot of education programs at colleges and universities were being undercut and the training was being done by groups like Teach for America. Exactly. Um, and I, I was that was sort of a, a, something I hadn't seen in quite that light before. Uh, but we have a lot of, of students at Agnes Scott who. Um, think that, you know, Teach for America is, is the way to go, you know, six weeks and you're trained to be a teacher. Um, and we are, you know, losing support for our own teacher education programs. So could you um, talk about what's maybe being done out there to, you know, f- fight this sure. erosion yeah. of teacher education programs and of, um teacher rights and, and all of that?
1: Well, well, first let me remind people that uh, the attacks are also about organized groups of teachers, not mm-hmm. not only um, individual teachers.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so the teacher unions are under attack. Act 10 in Wisconsin has become the model. Um, mm-hmm. and That's also now international. Um, and Act 10 said the following. Uh, not only we will you know will teachers be unable to bargain for all kinds of things but teacher unions will dissolve on december 31st of every year and then a new election must be held mm. um, in which 50 51 uh, percent of all of the members not just members who are voting um so if a person's in the hospital and they can't vote that counts as a no vote fifty one percent, must vote to reestablish the union. And throughout the United States, uh, so an example would be Wisconsin and many other states, the teacher unions have lost 40% of their membership. So we Mm -hmm. wanna understand that the the organizations that tend to defend teachers, which Mm -hmm. do have problems, many teacher unions were very good about things about labor rights and not so good about community rights about the rights of kids with disabilities or the rights of communities of color or communities on reservations. Um so I don't want to just say all the things that teachers do are correct and beautiful. That's not the case. Ideological form works through teachers as well as through the right. But it's clear that the the organizations that can that are so necessary to defend teachers Organizations that defend and give respect to teachers are now under attack as well. Hmm. But TFA becomes the uh, you know, just an instance of what's going on. Things that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the neoliberal attack on the public sphere is behind all of this. So, neoliberals believe one simple thing: if it's private, it must be good, and if it's public, it must be bad. Mm, yeah. And so the attack is on education as oddly enough, one of the last places that hasn't been totally privatized. Hmm. And that's at higher education, it's at technical schools. And we can see the influence of neoliberal agendas on the knowledge that's considered important, on the move towards uh, technical skills, um, the evacuation of critical understandings, Hmm. um, the defunding of the liberal arts, the defunding of schools of education, and the substitute uh, for test scores for what counts as a good education. Mm. So in some states, for instance, schools of education are given more money if their students score higher on the praxis examinations and other examinations. Mm. And we know right now that those people who come from impoverished backgrounds or poorly funded secondary schools will do, by and large, statistically less well on these tests. And therefore, their schools of education, often historically black universities and colleges, as an example, Mm -hmm. will, because they are socially committed, will have students who historically may not do as well on these standardized tests. So our new ministry of education is not in Washington. It's Pearson and company. And and so what we have then is this perfect storm of we evaluate teacher education based on test scores. We evaluate what good teachers are by test scores. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then we, uh, we put in place those parts of the curriculum that can be easily tested. So it's this vicious circle that goes on. And then we, uh, when it becomes more difficult for teachers, colleges, and others to do well, uh, we give them bad reputations. And then we uh, say, do TFA. Now, what's horrific about this is not just all of the research that shows that, by and large, TFA people don't do as well. Um, They're given scripted curriculum and going into scripted schools, um, such as KIPP academies, where the Mm -hmm. poor black kids are treated uh, very, very poorly in terms of bodily control for the Mm -hmm. teacher and for the kids themselves. But also the vast majority then leave after two years and go to law school or something like that. And it looks great on their vitas. And this has had an effect not just in the United States, but there's Teach China. There's TEACH Chile, there's TEACH Argentina, um, there's now TEACH India. Um, this is now international. So we have exported our crisis throughout the world. So mm-hmm. the neoliberal agenda is now worldwide, but it's not just privatization. There's a neoconservative attack, uh, which is you know, that we have to restore a common culture Well, there's never been a common culture in the United States. What is common is that we disagree on what is common. An example would be the one that I gave earlier about how many people actually know about the railroads and the Chinese.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So what is common is, what should be common, is the debate by teachers and communities over what we should teach our kids and whose voices must be heard. Mm So that creates a sort of part of a long history of dominant control of the curriculum. But at the same time, there's a third group called authoritarian populace. And these are increasingly powerful. And these are often um, Christian fundamentalists who believe that God said it, and that's the answer and can't be questioned. And mm-hmm. I don't want to challenge people's religious belief, but the fastest growing school reform in the United States is not charter schools and it's not voucher plans. It's homeschooling Yeah. where three to 5 million children, 80% of whom are uh, conservative evangelicals have been pulled out of even religious schools mm-hmm. and the home becomes the gated community that they will not hear about multiculturalism, thick democracy, And all of this is then organized by new managerial folks who may vote against the right. Most of them would never vote for Donald Trump. I can't believe I'm even saying his name. (laughs) Um, And they will vote for Obama or someone else. They might even be Sanders voters. But they believe one simple thing. If it moves in classrooms, measure it. And if it hasn't moved today, measure it anyway in case it moves tomorrow. So Mm -hmm. this unholy alliance then is what is pushing education in particular ways. And I actually want us to take this seriously because Mm -hmm. it is not only the privatizers. We can actually beat the privatizers in some school districts and still lose because of the other elements in this alliance. And my book, um, Educating the Right Way, was an attempt to try and look at this and then can education change society that more recent book was an attempt to say, okay, if this alliance is winning, what can we do about it to build more democratic alliances and democratic mm-hmm. schools? So you forgive me for going on about this, yeah. but this is a complicated process. Yeah. And our task is to understand, but understand with an eye towards what are the spaces where critical educators can work. It's not just to say, oh, crap, how bad it is. Mm-hmm. But to say, hmm, what's our ethical responsibility to interrupt this stuff? What yeah. can we do? And who's the we in the first place?
0: Yeah, and when yeah. I think when I think of Wisconsin, I uh, to have a happy moment here. I think of rethinking schools. Exactly. Uh, and the work that they're doing.
1: Yeah, one of my former students, Wayne A, was one of the ah. editors of that and that uh, okay. I have I and my students have worked with Rethinking Schools. And just so you know, the book, Democratic Schools, which is sold a huge numbers, all of the royalties that we get on that goes to Rethinking Schools. Oh, nice. But I... all the royalties for any of my books or my wife's books, Professor Rima Apple in Women's Studies, History of Medicine, we don't keep any of the money. It goes to organizations uh, for women's control of their own bodies and for organizations that are working on anti-racist forms and, de- and organizations like democratic schools. Mm.
0: So uh, we have Ooh.
1: to, you know, that's what I mean about your politics can't simply be rhetorical. We mm-hmm. have to give back what we can.